The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Let's turn in our Bibles to Daniel chapter 4, where we're continuing in this series, and we're in the second half of Daniel 4. If you weren't here last week, we began uh, in Daniel 4 by reading the first half and the dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had, and we made some principles and some applications from that about God humbling the pride of our hearts. We want to go on this week and look at and read the second half we in a sense, looked ahead to this last week, but we want to look at it in more depth and draw other conclusions from it. So we're reading in Daniel 4, beginning at verse 19 and reading through the end of chapter 4. Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived, It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, 
O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days... I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble." May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy word. Humble contentment in God. That is our theme that I want us to draw from our text this evening as we think about God's dealings with this heathen king. There are many examples in history of great reversals, of God humbling the proud, of God lifting up the lowly. One example that has been in my thoughts as I've read history, is a revolutionary war example of General Philip Schuller, probably a name not known to many of you. Um, During the Revolutionary War, there were a few battles that were famous. And because America didn't win many of them, it was a war of attrition more than anything else and just holding on until the British were ready to give up. We all know about maybe the Battle of Trenton and Princeton and the concluding battle at Yorktown. But not long after the beginning of the war, there was the famous Battle of Saratoga in New York State. What happened in the background of that is General Burgoyne, the English general, came down from Canada, down the Hudson Valley, through the various lakes, and took Fort Ticonderoga, which was a great loss to the American cause. It was actually that the Americans evacuated it. They weren't defeated and, and s- surrounded, but they were able to evacuate and escape barely. And they kept retreating. They kept retreating through what was wilderness in the heat of summer. And they kept, the English kept advancing, the English with their Hessians, with their Germans, and their Indian allies as well. And uh, fear was struck throughout the colonies at that time because of this. And the the British attempt was to cut the colonies in half coming down the Hudson. Well, the general for the colonies that was in charge of defense was Philip Schuller. He was a very rich man. He had profited from agriculture and so forth, and his home was near Albany, New York now. And the Battle of Saratoga eventually took place there. But the irony is this. General Schuller was a 
very conscientious and hardworking man. And he did all that he could to prepare for the inevitable battle that was to take place. Uh, Forming militia, bringing militia, especially from New England, seeking to find supplies, studying the lay of the land, seeking to do everything his troops could possibly do to delay the British advance, to stretch their supply line as far as he could, which was very wise. But the Congress removed him from command and appointed General Gates a very short period before the fateful battle took place. And so you can imagine who got all the glory. General Gates got all the glory. General Schuller didn't. And, but the interesting thing that showed the greatness of the man is that he still sought to do everything he could, even after he had been removed from command and essentially demoted. He did everything he could for the cause And really, it was essentially all of his work that enabled the Continental Army to win the victory, a stunning victory, which caused King George III to lament, um, to cry out in agonies, as his aides recorded. General Schuller was content with American victory, and it was only later that history was kind to him in really seeing and acknowledging the crucial role that he played. But Gates got all the glory. We come to this second half of Daniel 4, and I want us to think about the subject of our contentment in God, our contentment with his work in our lives. We know Christ through faith in him, those of us who who are believers in Christ, and yet it is a lifelong task to come to grips with true contentment in Christ. Because often what happened to General Schuller essentially happens in smaller, more everyday ways to all of us. We think that we ought to get the glory or we think that things should go well for us in certain ways, and it just doesn't work out that way. I want us to see two main points in our text. And the first is I want us to see this. Recognize that God will be teaching us contentment through our life experiences. Recognize that God will be teaching us contentment through our life experiences. We see this in Nebuchadnezzar in the sense that all that has happened in the book of Daniel up to this point has not changed Nebuchadnezzar at all. He has seen some pretty astounding things. He has had already dreams and had them interpreted for him. Chapter 1, we see that. We see that he experiences and sees firsthand Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego cast into the fiery furnace, but that doesn't have an impact on him. But now in chapter 4, as we begun to look at last week, we see Nebuchadnezzar learn by experience. There is this dream, and we see the interpretation Daniel gives of this dream. And I want us to stop and think about the interpretation Daniel gives and the fact that Nebuchadnezzar first goes to his magicians. We didn't read the verses before verse 19, but we saw last week that he first turns to his really worldly magicians, the wise men of his realm, to interpret this dream for him. And finally, he has to go to Daniel. There's probably a sense in which Nebuchadnezzar already essentially knew the real interpretation of the dream. It's interesting if you compare verse 25, Daniel says that you shall be driven from among men and so forth. 
And he says, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. It's interesting that if you turn back to the dream part in verse 17, this is just the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the words of the Holy One, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliness the lowliest of men. In other words, really, the watchers, the angels who are part of this dream, give the interpretation of the dream in the dream itself. You can see that's almost the exact same words when Daniel finally interprets the dream for him. There is this sense, I think we are to understand, that Nebuchadnezzar was really looking for some alternative explanation for this dream. The wise men didn't give it to him, I think there's a sense in which he knew the meaning of the dream. He knew, really, in a sense, the sovereignty and the righteousness of God before God humbled him. He just didn't want to face it. He didn't want to believe it. Uh, He didn't like it. He called his own magicians first because I think he wanted them to give an interpretation that he could understand. And certainly by understanding a dream, interpreting the dream, a king of that day and age would see it very much that you want to be able to control the events that might lead from this dream to your own ends. It kind of reminds me how presidents and so forth spin news events and news stories so that even if... Uh, some event might take place, they want to have their advisor and everyone tell them how to interpret it so that ends up, you know, hopefully furthering their cause. You know, they can take an event that seems to, to someone like us to be opposite and that they should say, yeah, that shows that I'm wrong in doing this. And rather they spin it and say, no, it shows the opposite. And the public is always kind of perplexed when politicians do this, but it's done all the time. And it's nothing new under the son. He didn't call in Daniel immediately because he wanted to control and interpret his dream in his own way, and he knew that Daniel wouldn't do that. Now, I may be reading into the text a bit that way, but clearly earlier we see that he understands there is something different about Daniel and his three friends. In fact, we're told in verse 8, which we looked at last week, that he says, at last Daniel came in before me, he whose name was Belshazzar, after the name of my God, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And he says, and I told him the dream, saying, O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dreams, and so forth. He recognized that in his pagan mindset, and he's, it's kind of interesting because this, this is a letter or decree that Nebuchadnezzar is sending out after the dream, and he's kind of looking back before and using pagan language, the spirit of the holy gods is in you. And then later on he says, Daniel, I know that, you, that uh, secrets don't trouble you. Well, in a sense he's saying, he recognizes something is different in Daniel and that he has to go to him because he has no alternative but Daniel's wise counsel and interpretation. Why, is Nebuch- why does Nebuchadnezzar go out of the way to call his own magicians first? Why, 
Why doesn't he just receive this dream? And we might ask, why doesn't he humble himself? He has a whole year. God grants, God patiently bears with him and grants him an entire year. We, we find that at the end of 12 months, it's only at the end of 12 months as he's walking on the palace roof that this great humbling takes place. And you just think of what's been happening during that time. Daniel has told him, break off your sins by practicing righteousness. That's an Old Testament way to talk about true repentance, to turning to the true God and showing it by righteous fruits. And he says specifically, and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. One of the characteristics of Nebuchadnezzar's reign was his immense building projects that he carried on. And no doubt, the implication here is that he carried out these building projects on the backs of the poor, of the oppressed, of slaves. And Daniel was saying, break that off. It is wrong for you to crush the poor and the oppressed. But clearly he didn't do that. Clearly he kept on with his agenda for his life and his kingdom. And so the fulfillment finally comes in verse 28 and following we find this momentous occasion when God brought low the pride and self-sufficiency of the king at a moment we might call breathtaking self-sufficiency and pride. Here he is, the most exalted ruler of the known world of that time, on the roof of his royal palace, beholding all of its splendor. And here, He's had dreams from God. He's had Daniel sent to him from God. He's had examples of signs and wonders in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being providentially and miraculously preserved by God. And that is all to no avail against the hardness of Nebuchadnezzar's heart. And walking there, beholding all that he had built, and what does he say to himself? Is there any acknowledgement of God and his glory and Nebuchadnezzar's dependence on him? No. Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Breathtaking words of self-sufficiency and pride. Imagine being able to say something like that. You know, it's just hard for us to relate to someone in the world so exalted as he was in his day. Very few have ever been that exalted. We have our celebrities in our society, the great ones, we would say, of modern life. I won't mention any names, but probably some of you read about the, um, the football player after one of the playoff games who was interviewed on the field. I won't mention any names. And he was very honest about, you know, it just came right out of him, his, his view of the greatness of who he was. And, um, you know, it went viral that week, uh, apparently, because it was just breathtaking because hardly anyone ever says it that way. And he said it. And, you know, he just basically said, I'm the greatest. And, um, you know, often people in our day and age think that. We just don't say it. We rarely are so honest, especially in an interview uh, in television live like that. Well, In a sense, you could just read back in and see Nebuchadnezzar saying that. And he didn't have, you know, any kind of a a press corps that he had to watch what he said around. 
But it's interesting, Scripture says, at that very moment, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there's almost a sense here that he didn't even get all the words out. It's almost like it was cut short by his words were cut short by God's words. The true king of kings spoke and said to him, O king, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And so on. And it was immediately fulfilled that we don't know exactly how it took place, but he was driven from among men. And his dwelling place was, what, was among the beasts of the field. And he was made to eat grass and so forth. And seven periods of time passed over him. We don't know how long it is. Most commentators don't think that is seven years. It could be seven years or seven months. It probably is the Hebrew word and expression of completeness. We do know his hair obviously grew very long um, and became very um, much like feathers of a bird. Very um, strange looking. He was like an animal. And so God brought his just judgment upon Nebuchadnezzar. The man who had oppressed the poor, now, interestingly, he becomes lower than the poorest of the poor. The man who, has, who had exalted his godlike power becomes less than a human being. He becomes like the animals of the field. And God brought him low in a just and in a righteous, and we find in a gracious humbling of him. Because then we find that at the end of days, verse 34, God raised him up. I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him. And we'll look more at what he said. In many ways, Nebuchadnezzar's example is special. It's a special part of redemptive history. Certainly, we can draw applications to ourselves. And, and this first point, the application that I want us to see is this. God teaches you and me humble contentment in him through life experiences. He teaches us through his word, but he also applies his word to us in life experiences. Maybe you have never genuinely humbled yourself before God in repentance and faith in Christ. And if that's the case, Nebuchadnezzar's example is a very sobering one. Uh, You think of Nebuchadnezzar. He was essentially believing and saying, all is well with my life apart from God. I do not need to bow before God. I do not need to submit myself to God. I don't need to trust in him. I don't need to praise him and glorify him. No, I am supreme And I am in control of my life. And essentially, that is what anyone says when they refuse to turn to God through Jesus Christ. It's a very dangerous thing to say. And maybe you are, in a sense, achieving all you want in life right now. Or life is good for you. And you like your life the way it is. Or you want to be in control of your life. And you're afraid of giving your life to God for him to rule and guide and command you. And God's word calls us to repentance. It calls us to be wise and to not harden our hearts to God's word like Nebuchadnezzar did. Nebuchadnezzar had 12 months, and then God dealt with him. We cannot say how God is going to deal with us or whether 
he will require us, as the famous parable Jesus tells, that tonight this very life will be required of you. God may humble you by stripping some of the things you most love in your life. His ways are very, very mysterious, but we know that the scriptures say it is the kindness and mercy of God which leads us to repentance and to, to, to true joy in Christ. So, yes, in a sense, coming to Jesus Christ costs everything. It causes us to humble ourselves, but it is free and it is merciful, and it is gracious, and it gives us everything, in another sense, in Jesus Christ. So maybe that's the application you need to draw to yourself if you haven't come to Christ. But for many of us, maybe you have walked with Christ for years. The lesson here is to think about the way God continues to teach us humble contentment through our experiences in this life. Paul's example is instructive here when Paul talks about learning contentment in Philippians 4, a very familiar text to us. He says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul's example is certainly one that teaches us that if Paul needed to learn contentment in this way, so do we. I was interested in Dr. Rogers' example this this morning of George Whitfield, the great evangelist of the Great Awakening. And Dr. Rogers talked about how George Whitfield is probably the greatest preacher in the English language of all times. And the amazing thing is that he began his ministry at age 21. And Dr. Rogers mentioned his celebrity status. He was the first celebrity in the English-speaking world in that sense, both in England and in the United States. But Dr. Rogers emphasized his humility. And at one point, really meaning and saying, let the name of Whitfield perish. Now, when I study Whitfield's life and I think about what Whitfield experienced over the next 35 years of tremendous ministry for the kingdom of Christ, wouldn't you think that a man that's already, you know, born the, the burden of celebrity status so well, and it, it largely didn't go to his head. He was able to stay humble in Christ and to be used by God, and who was so used by God in the great awakening to turn thousands and thousands to Christ. Wouldn't you think, if we were left to our human wisdom, wouldn't you think that, well, he doesn't need to go through too many hard things? You know, of course, me just saying that makes us shake our head and say, how can we say that? But you just think about some of the things that Whitfield had to endure. One of the amazing things that he did was start an orphanage in the wilderness in Georgia. And it was certainly used by God. It was a wonderful cause. He was always raising money for the orphanage. And uh, in fact, Dr. Rogers mentioned Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin went to hear George Whitfield preach one time, and he had given to the cause that Whitfield supported so many times that he decided not to take any money with him this time because he didn't want to give anything. And he records this in a humorous way. Of course, you might know the end of the story that as Whitfield concluded his sermon 
and added to it an appeal for funding for the orphanage, Benjamin Franklin was so moved that he had to borrow money from a friend to put in the offering plate. There went his plan. But the thing that you may not know is that the the great supporter of that orphanage, the very wealthy man in England who supported that at the initial stage, suffered an untimely death. And for years, George Whitfield had to bear the burden of this tremendous debt for the orphanage, and he was always one step from debtor's prison because of it. It wasn't until near the very end of his life that he was released from that burden through a strong gift from someone. Or another thing that he experienced was the very sad loss of his infant son, the only son that he would have. And uh, his wife, who was traveling from London to Bristol in wintertime, in carriages of those days, it was cold. We don't know if that's the exact reason why the infant son got sick and died, but that was the Whitfield's only child who was lost, and so he didn't have his son. Or he had very difficult times with close associates later in life, some of the men who would have been the most uh, strenuous supporters of him and the men who would stand by his side, one of them particular got into heresies and it seemed to almost lose his mind. Um, he experienced things like this. And then some of the unwise things he had written in his journals, which were like missionary records of the time, missionary letters that you would send back to home. And some of the things that he said, which really expressed some of the uh, immaturity of youth when he was 21, 22, 23, those things came back to haunt him in a sense. All those kinds of things. And you can, you can look at other things from anyone's life, and, and you think of Whitfield, and you think about how greatly he was used by God, but clearly God had purposes in Whitfield's life to further teach him that humility, that humble contentment in God, that sense that he was completely dependent on God at all times, something that is not easy for any of us to learn. And so we know that God teaches us humble contentment in him by our life experiences. But then our second point is this. In those life experiences, we learn to confess and believe the truth about God and ourselves. In these life experiences, the goal is to learn to confess and believe the truth about God and ourselves. Notice, I want us to stop and just look at some of the truths Nebuchadnezzar confesses. He's been humbled, he's been brought low, he's been elevated again in a way greater than before, but we see this conclusion to Daniel 4, and we see this beautiful confession of the greatness and sovereignty of God. And as I, as I look at this, I think it reflects something of our need as well to confess and believe, in a sense, to preach to ourselves, to talk to ourselves about the truth of who God is and the truth of who we are. And I emphasize confess and believe. Usually we think about it the opposite way. We believe and then we confess. But don't all of us know that Now that we've come to believe in Christ, there's a sense in which we need to talk to ourselves. We need to confess the truth of God even when we struggle with it, and that helps our belief. It helps the weakness of our faith. We know we can't just say something over and over again, and and that 
causes our hearts to change, but we know the Bible tells us that we are to speak to ourselves. We are to believe the word of God. And there's this sense that we confess it, and then we are helped to believe it and to hold to it. You think about the fact that God says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. There's this sense in which God must build our house. We must, it is all dependent on God's grace. And certainly, in Nebuchadnezzar's restoration, we see that all was by the the grace of God. That um, now, Nebuchadnezzar recognized the sovereignty of God, and he bowed humbly before him. And interestingly, Nebuchadnezzar's restoration from this animal-like experience... I think, commentators will say, is a vivid illustration of God's restoration of the image of God in those who trust in him. We are restored from almost an animal-like failure to acknowledge God, and we're lifted up, and we begin to see things as they really are. I want us to see a fourfold confession here that Nebuchadnezzar confessed, and we want to briefly look at each one of these. The first is this. Nebuchadnezzar confessed the sovereignty of God, especially in verses 34 and 35. Notice at the end of verse 34, And he praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? What a declaration. What a description of the absolute sovereignty of God. This is probably more than just a confession of the bare sovereignty of God. As if a heathen king could just say, I know God is sovereign over all. And the hint of that is possibly in that phrase at the end of verse 34. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. That phrase is used in Exodus 20. It's used in Psalm 103. It's a phrase that gives a hint that Nebuchadnezzar understands something of God's sovereignty expressed in his covenant faithfulness to his people. In other words, it's, it's a phrase that brings in this idea of God is for those who trust in his unfailing love. God's covenant, God's faithfulness to generation to generation. It's a hint even of true conversion here. And there's debate whether, uh, whether Nebuchadnezzar's confession is evidence of true conversion. Is he truly converted? Is this true faith? Or is he just humbled and knows something of God? There's a debate about that. We maybe can't answer that for sure. Many argue, though, that this does show that Nebuchadnezzar understands something of the loving sovereignty of God for those who trust in him. And as we think of the application of that to ourselves, as we experience the ups and downs of life, the hard things in life, we ask ourselves, am I learning more and more deeply to confess and to believe the sovereignty of God, especially that sovereignty of God at work for the good of those who put their hope in his unfailing love. You know, you can't 
read this without thinking about the fullness of New Testament understanding of this. And you think about passages such as the end of Romans 8. I won't read all of it. But where Romans 8 talks about God being for us in Christ and who can be against us. Who is he to condemn? And then you read about who shall separate us from the love of Christ. And and the apostle lists all these possible trials. Tribulation, distress, persecution, so on. He says, no, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The end of Romans 8 is an exposition of what Nebuchadnezzar says, but with the fullness of New Testament understanding of that, that God is for us in Christ. And so we can absolutely rest in his sovereignty no matter what befalls us. We can confess and believe the sovereignty of God. There was an article in World magazine the other week about Elizabeth Elliot. Many of you have heard her speak over the years, and maybe you saw the interview. didn't actually interview her, although the the interviewer was at Elizabeth Elliot's home with her husband, Lars Gren, of 34 years, and really they could only talk to him. And for two hours, they interviewed Lars Gren about Elizabeth Elliot because she's struggled with dementia for 10 years now. She's probably about 87, I'm not sure. Um, a famous personage who used to be a radio personality speaking the word of God and speaking to women's groups. And um, the interesting thing I thought was they got to the end of the interview and they're talking about 10 years ago when dementia, when the onset of dementia was experienced by her. And if you've read any of her books, you know that much of her teaching ministry was about submission to the will of God and how we are to really rest in his wisdom in our lives. And she hadn't said anything for two hours. And the interviewer was talking to Lars Grant and said, so really, when the onset of dementia came, Elizabeth Elliot really sought and held firmly to her trust in her Savior and her submission to his wise plan for her life. And Elizabeth Elliot, who hadn't said a word, said very distinctively, yes. <laughs> she, she got it. She understood that. And she, she still held to that. I think that's a beautiful example of this kind of confessing and believing the loving sovereignty of God in our lives. Well, the second thing, briefly, in verse 35, we see Nebuchadnezzar com- confessing the complete dependence of human beings on God, especially in that phrase, All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. Nebuchadnezzar, the Bible, is not minimizing the dignity of human beings created in the image of God. But he is highlighting, compared to God, we are accounted as nothing. It's just speaking of our sufficiency. We are not sufficient in that sense. We are not autonomous. And the mark of a heart subdued by God is the knowledge that we are not autonomous, but we are beings created by God, sustained by God, and daily dependent on God alone. And our true joy is really found in recognizing and even glorying in our dependence. That is not something that comes easily to us, but that is a a truth that we need to confess And thirdly, there is Nebuchadnezzar confesses the righteousness of God. Verse 37, 
Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. What works and ways do you think he's referring to here? Well, he's talking about all of God's ways, but no doubt preeminent among the works and the ways of God are what God has just done in his life. Nebuchadnezzar has been greatly humbled by God. He knows that God did this. God brought him low. Is Nebuchadnezzar saying, how dare God do that? No, he's saying, no, now I've come to see his works are right and his ways are just. God's judgments are right and appropriate. Amazing truth of the gospel is that God is just, and in Romans 3.26 we're told, God is just and the one who justifies the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. God can be just and justify sinners through Christ. What, is it? what an amazing truth. And we think about 1 John 1.9, that if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So one of the great glories of the gospel is that our God can be just, and yet he can justify us and forgive us in Christ as well. But when it comes to assessing this present world, when it comes to evaluating our life experiences, when you think about what you've been through the last week or the last month or the hard things you went through the last year, or what's happening in your life right now, isn't it a special temptation to think somehow to stand in judgment on God's justice? To think, God, why are you doing this? Especially we look around the world and see what's happening in the world, and there's always injustices, and there are always those who are who are powerful and proud, seeming to exalt themselves, and we don't see justice. The truth of the justice and the righteousness of God is only maintained and held by believing God's word. God's word tells us all of God's works, all of God's ways are just. It's just not evident to the eye of sight. We do not yet see this in fullness. And God is one day going to right every wrong. We just do not see it yet. We hold to it by the truth of God's word. I think in some ways it's easier for us as believers to believe the big picture about the ultimate justice of God, that a day of judgment will come in which he will right every wrong. How do we deal with that in the daily, in the yearly kinds of struggles as we seek to believe God's just and righteous ways with us in the sufferings that we experience and our confusion about what God is doing in our lives, why he doesn't let things work out the way we would like them to. That's a fight of faith, to believe the ways of God are righteous and just, and again, to rest in him. And then finally, the fourth thing Nebuchadnezzar confesses is that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. The final conclusion of verse 37, and those who walk in pride he is able to, to humble. That's, in a sense, the great moral of the story from Nebuchadnezzar 4. Reminds me of Proverbs 3.34. Towards the scorners, God is scornful, but to the humble, he gives grace. Or 1 Peter 5.6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. And so you and I must talk to ourselves. We must remind ourselves of God's promise 
to give grace to the humble. Here, Nebuchadnezzar was graciously humbled by God, maybe even truly converted by God's grace. And Jesus tells us later, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. The kingdom of God, you see, is an upside-down kingdom. It's an amazing thing. And the world never understands this. But Christians, you and I need to be reminded of this truth in a world that has gone wild with self-promotion, self-seeking, self-exaltation. It's around us all the time. It's in the air we breathe. We cannot help but be affected by it to some degree and to think in a worldly way. But God's people are called to walk to a different drumbeat. I hope that you and I will rejoice in the ongoing work of God in our lives. He is faithful. He is loving. He is just. He humbles us so that he is able to give us more grace, more joy in him, more fullness in the all-sufficient love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Father, thank you that you promise grace upon grace, that you give grace to those who are lowly and contrite in spirit and who tremble at your word. We want to have that kind of a heart, and we know it doesn't come naturally to us. We wish that there were ways for us to learn these things without having to go through the discipline of God in our lives. But we know it's just not that way. We just can't be that way, uh, in a sense, in our youth. You mold us, you shape us, you humble us, and yet in all of this that you're doing, you lift us up through Jesus Christ. Help us to delight in that. Help us to want that above everything else. In a sense, Lord, we don't want suffering in our lives, but we want what is best for us. And above all, we want to know you better. We want the love of God through Jesus Christ poured out into our hearts and have humble hearts that can receive it and rest in you alone. So we ask that you would do this, accomplish your work, help us to believe your word. In Jesus' name, amen.